Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our latest episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Uh, again, we're in for a special treat. We've we've just had some really, really special episodes lately, and primarily because of the guests we've had and uh, because of the movies we've picked. We've been picking favorite movies of uh, ours and uh, also of our hosts. And so those two things combined today with the movie Interstellar and our special guest, Seth Creekmore, who goes by Creek. Emphasis on special. On special, yes, but in a nice way. Yes, yeah. I meant that in a nice way. Not in a flourish way, uh, but we'll get uh, yes. to that. Okay, All great. Right? So, <laughs> so, 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 Creek, before I ask you to introduce yourself to the audience and, and say hello, um, you know, it occurred to me today that you are probably now part of the three most important podcasts about the Enneagram. Um, you know, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Um, yes. It's such an honor and a privilege to um, to get to hear your voice on a, not on a weekly basis. It's, uh, yeah, I go through withdrawal when we're not, when we're not connected. So that's, <laughs> there you go. So listeners may recognize Creek from the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. He's also one of the uh, three hosts of the Fathoms podcast, which I'm a big fan of and highly recommend to our listeners. So, so Creek, uh, say hi to everybody and uh, yeah. give a little introduction to yourself, please. Great. So yeah, I go by Creek. Um, it's easiest because I have too many Seths in my life. And um, yeah, so I, I am in the podcast industry. I work on a lot of podcasts every day. Um, co-host of t- t- three, three now. Um, one is in, uh, is, is paused for now, but so that's fathoms. That's the awareness action podcast. And there's one, the one that's paused is delusional optimism. Um, it's a, she's a clinical psychologist specializing in early childhood development. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I never intended on getting into the podcast industry. And then all of a sudden it's what I do every day. Um, so I've learned to love it and enjoy it, and uh, it's a it's enough creativity to keep me interested, um, and yeah, and it's it's flexible. I'm self-employed, so I get to travel a bunch. Love doing that. Uh, I'm a musician, so that um, the podcasting gives me money, so I can make music. So that's that's how that works. So where can people find out more? Because Creek is a very gifted musician and his music is excellent. Uh, Where can people find out more about uh, your music and about your podcasting services? Music is everywhere music resides uh, under the name Creekmore. And I have a few things out. Just dropped a single earlier this year. Looking to drop another one sometime this fall. And for my podcasting services, you can just reach me at creekmoremusic at gmail.com. All right, great. And you said you have too many Seths in your life. Uh, 
you know, I, I got to say I have too many TJs in my life as Oof. well. But fortunately, I haven't uh, had to change my name. And so, which is just a nice transition into, uh, you know, uh, saying hi to the TJs. Uh, uh, guys, how you doing today? TJ and Gracia, let's hear from you first, please. Doing well. Glad to be here. I'm, I'm, like I said last week when we recorded with Russ Hudson, I'm excited to uh, shut up and listen for the most part today. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping to get a lecture on uh, wormholes and why they're spherical because I really struggled <laughs> to understand that piece. But uh, can't, I'm hearing can't help that- you much there. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. I love space and and science. And then I got into high school and opened a physics textbook, and I wanted to just ram my head into the wall. So it's hard to be an astrophysicist if you don't like physics. So that dream died quickly. That was me in history. I, I wanted to be like some sort of archaeologist, and then I opened. I'm like, oh, too many dates. I can't. I can't remember these dates. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So, 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 TJ Dahl, what childhood dreams did you give up on uh, once you realized it was too difficult? <laughs> Movie star. <laughs> I saw Star Wars when I was three years old, and I wanted to do that. I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was seven. I want to do that. And then in theater school, the whole having to audition, blah, having to say somebody else's lines, no, thank you. Gotcha. gotcha. Much less right. what I've since come to understand being in movies is actually like, which is a lot of waiting. Hmm. Yes. A lot of sitting in your trailer if you have a trailer, or an extra's holding if you're an extra. A lot of waiting for, for everything to be set up just right until you come on and do your thing for about one minute. And then, all right, mm-hmm. time to go wait again. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, all right. So uh, so let's move on from our dashed childhood hopes. And, uh, and I can only hear yours, though. Yeah. I, 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 I don't have – I was born aspirationless, <laughs> you know, so um, – <laughs> All okay. right. So, uh, so we're talking about the movie Interstellar. Interstellar was the, I think, 2014 movie um, directed by uh, Christopher Nolan. We haven't done a Christopher Nolan movie yet, have we? No. Um, and like a number of his movies, this deals with time. And that's where I first noticed Christopher Nolan uh, was in, with the movie Memento, which just I remember seeing and just being awestruck by the way he told a he told a story backward and it worked about somebody who could not create new memories which meaning time kind of stopped for him right so not only did you have time stopping for the character but the film was told in reverse uh really really interesting um uh, creek why interstellar yeah so interstellar came into my life at a particular point um that I'll spare you the story from but it, it meant a lot to me in that stage. Um, it was kind of a beginning um, of me kind of expanding how I was thinking. And so uh, space and science was one of those areas in which I began to explore. And I think in a lot of ways, um, as Mario constantly makes fun of me for, I don't watch a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... When I watched this one and it affected me deeply and more, more often than not, what I realize it, when it affects me deeply, it's more often the, the score than the story ah. and come to find out Hans Zimmer was the, uh, was the composer for that. Who's my all time favorite. Ah. I, I think, I mean, it's, it's my, out of all of his scores, 
Interstellar is by far my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, so spacious. It's both intimate but impersonal. It just feels like a four inner journey for me. Like just the sweeping, large, expansive, but an organic, um, dark and longing and uncertain. And so it just, I don't know. I think it just mirrored some part of myself back to me. So that's, that's why I chose Interstellar. Interesting. Yeah, good. And the spacious part, I'm sure, was not a pun. So I saw TJ. I saw T and TJ and Gracia light up when you used that word. So, uh, <laughs> all right, great. Uh, so I was saying before the uh, before we started recording that I took my two sons, my two older sons, to see this uh, in the theater in when it came out, and they were, I believe, nine and. Um, Uh, 11 at the time and um, expecting them to come out thinking why did you do this to us dad you know I mean what you know I'm I'm nine years old for crying out loud right Um, but they loved the movie and uh, the the younger of the two was just telling me as I was rewatching it the other night that it's his favorite movie he's seen it five or six times Um, uh, TJ and Gracia tell me about your history with interstellar or your feelings about the movie i don't remember if i saw it in the theater or not although watching it again it's definitely it's a movie that needs to be seen in the theater especially with the uh the imax which Mm -hmm. christopher nolan uses a lot i'm a huge christopher nolan fan yeah just his cinematography and the scores and the playing with time you leave the theater uh thinking (laughs) he's gonna he's gonna make you think i hate that (laughs) yeah, <laughs> entertained and and you have to think how about mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. so yeah it just it was a i really enjoyed watching it again as incomprehensible as the as the space stuff is you know the science and the physics and the gravity and the dimensions i i was just thinking that i i need to watch tenet again his oh, was boy. that his, was that his last film yeah. that film was a you know i don't know which end yes. was up when i got through yeah. with that one so It deserves another watch. But I mean, his films, I feel like you could just turn the sound off and just watch them. And visually, they're just so enthralling. I, and you know, I, from the, just being a video producer and I like watching, it's even fun for me when I see, because he films a lot in IMAX, the frame, the ratio changes, aspect ratio changes on screen. So sometimes it'll be full screen and then it'll cut to, anamorphic and you'll get the letterboxing on top and so it's always fun for me like oh that was imax because now we switch back so i like to nerd out on that kind of stuff yeah yeah it's interesting you mentioned tenet uh that that was a movie that was supposed to be a huge huge movie uh covid um impacted it that delayed the release a number of times and it was thought to be the movie that was going to save movies because it would draw people back to uh, the theaters and it did not because people who saw Tenet and I was one of them kind of thought that was cool but what the hell was going on here right you know so uh, with the kind of backward forward storytelling at the same time anyway it's a good challenge to go back and watch Tenet I might do that myself um, TJ Daw, your feelings about Interstellar I saw it when it came out in the theaters and my memory is of really liking it. It didn't blow my mind, but I really liked it. And I'm particularly interested in Christopher Nolan because his his big break was Memento, but what really shot him into the stratosphere as one of the A-list directors was the Dark Knight trilogy. 
And because he had so much success with that, I found it particularly interesting that he was doing his own stuff the whole time. In between every Batman movie, there's at least one movie that's original that's, you know, he's writing or co-writing with his brother. He might have been co-writing with his brother the whole time. But like he he maintains that singular vision, that integrity of wanting to do his own thing, even though if he'd wanted to, he could have just made a career out of doing franchise movies and done them exceptionally well. And I love the Dark Knight trilogy. I think they're masterful superhero films. Uh, TJ and Gracia, just one thing to, um, you might have heard of this. I don't know. Steven Soderbergh released a version of Raiders of the Lost Ark in which he switched the cinematography to black and white and removed all the sound and replaced the soundtrack, the score, with Trent Reznor soundtracks from mostly Social Network, I think, and Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. And he released this specifically to encourage you to watch the film as simply a visual experience and to see how clear it is in every moment what's happening with every character, who feels what, how they're reacting, in what way. And I watched it and I watched, I ended up watching the entire thing. I just flipped to a random scene and there's Indy drinking, kind of bathing, drowning himself in his sorrows from Marion's supposed death, which was a red herring. But just the way he lays the bottle down and shows that he's drunk and just his attitude and just it was it was exactly like Steven Soderbergh mentioned. So the idea that you mentioned of watching John, uh, Christopher Nolan movies with the sound off it really appeals to me. I don't know that I'd have the time to do it. They're generally pretty long <laughs> movies. But I think that's the mark of really good visual filmmaking. Yeah. And and he certainly Christopher Nolan really is uh, a genius and a, and a brilliant filmmaker. Um, and I agree with you, TJ. You know, not only did I enjoy the um, the Dark Knight trilogy, but they were such a reinvention of the story, right? I mean, you compare those to say the Michael Keaton version, right, or you know anything uh, uh, since. Or it's, it's just a remarkable vision uh, that the guy has. So, T.J. Dahl, tell us the story of Interstellar, please. Summarize the movie for us. Okay, so this is, as always, a spoiler-filled summary of the movie for anybody who hasn't seen it. Coop, played by Matthew McConaughey, is a former NASA pilot turned corn farmer at an unspecified time in the future in which crops are failing, dust storms are frequent, the human population is down, and technological development has been on pause for a while as people simply focus on survival. His adolescent daughter Murph believes there is some kind of message being communicated in the displacement of books from the shelf in her bedroom. Coop eventually believes her, decodes the message, which sends him to a secret NASA base. NASA is believed to have been dissolved, but is still operating in secret. And there he is asked to pilot a ship into a wormhole outside of Saturn, leading to a dozen potentially habitable worlds where astronauts had been sent a dozen years before. He goes with Brand, played by Anne Hathaway, and two other scientists, and a rectangular robot named TARS. They go through the wormhole, and then they reach the new galaxy, and they visit one planet that's so near a black hole that time dilates, and the three hours they spend on that planet equates to 23 years on Earth. When they get back to their main ship, Coop receives messages from home, which includes the fact that Murph, now played by Jessica Chastain, is in her mid-30s and now works for NASA under Professor Brand, Michael Caine, as they try to figure out a way to solve the gravity equation that will allow them to move a massive human transport into space and help people leave the dying Earth. Coop and Brand then go to the next planet and find Dr. Mann, the head of the exploratory mission from a dozen years before. They find a frozen planet. They wake up Dr. Mann, played by Matt Damon from Hibernation. Turns out he had falsified his data, saying the planet was habitable. 
and it's not, simply to get rescued. And the actual mission had always been to create a colony from frozen embryos, not to save anybody who's on Earth now, since there's just no chance of solving the gravity equation without the specific information that you can only get inside a black hole, and you can't have anything leave a black hole, including the information about a black hole. Dr. Mann tries to take command of the central ship, but destroys the smaller ship that he's in and dies. Coop and Brand take control of the damaged ship and slingshot it around the black hole to reach the third planet, which is all that they have the resources to get to. They eject their rectangular robot TARS to collect data from inside the black hole, and Coop then ejects himself as there is only enough life support for one astronaut. Coop's small ship starts shaking apart as he goes into the black hole. He ejects, floats through space, eventually coming into a seemingly endless representation of Murph's bedroom. TARS, the robot, is still able to communicate with him, and Coop relays the data from the black hole into the ticking second hand of a watch he had given Murph before he left for space. Murph decodes this, solves the gravity equation, and then Coop wakes up in a space station having been rescued after drifting back through the wormhole. He's reunited with Murph, who is now very old. She encourages him to go back into space to find Brand. And in the final shot, we see Brand on the planet she had set out for, breathing the atmosphere without her helmet, implying that this will be, or at least could be, a place where the human race gets our second chance. Great. So, um, still makes no sense. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. No, that, that, was, that was great. Um, so, this, you know, what was fascinating to me about this movie uh, well, a number of things, right? We've talked about some of the visual parts of it. We've talked about the music, all of which were great. I think there's some really good acting in this movie. Uh, I think Matthew McConaughey in particular is pretty good. Um, and um, But the science was interesting. And what I liked about this movie is that to the degree that I could understand it, the science was accurate, you know, which is nice. And that stems from the movie originally coming from uh, a, a discussion with a, a Nobel laureate, Kip Thorne, who was an astrophysicist, I believe. And um, so they did a really good job on making sure that the science worked. And um, so there was a lot about relativity in there that had to do with, you know, time displacement and so forth. Um, and I, th I think Kip Thorne also was an advisor on contact, Yes, which, um, which there's some parallels with contact in this film, or at least some places where they kind of, you know, touch each other. I, I was, um, watching a few videos and saw that part of the work of designing the black hole, uh, took over a year of work and some of the frames took over a hundred hours to render because of the amount of data that was being input into making wow. it as real and and uh, physically possible mm -hmm. uh, or accurate. Um, yeah. I just thought that was just, I love that amount of effort put into something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, TJ, you mentioned contact, and uh, there are a number of sort of analogs to this. And as you're watching this movie, you're thinking there's a number of ways this could go, right? So obviously there were the connections to uh, contact with the whole wormhole idea, even though I don't think that they explicitly talked about the idea of a wormhole in contact. They may have, but that's what she went through when the thing dropped, it seems. There were also some uh, 2001 
uh, illusions. In fact, that's what gets the robots' uh, comedy uh, uh, or humor uh, ratio uh, turned down a little bit because he starts making howl jokes, uh, which you know didn't go over well. Um, and he kind of looks like the um, what do you call it the the monolith from the opening of Oh uh, yeah, you know? very good. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and uh, there was you know there were moments where I thought this could take a real children of men turn as well, right? With the you know sort of end of times, the uh, Clive Owen movie, and especially with um, Michael Caine in it, who played a quirky role in Children of Men. You get this feeling that this could go really dark, you know, really bad. It it also made me think of Arrival. Right, uh, which was was later uh, the um, Denis Villeneuve movie, and um, th- there were some other things in there as well. But it was kind of a self conscious movie that way, right? Uh, appreciative of uh, movie history and sci fi. Yeah. I actually, I've th- this is what came up for me when I listened to the when I heard the voice of the robot. Immediately, it brought me back to the robot and Lost in Space. Like something uh-huh. about the timbre of the voice just oh, immediately reminded me of that. But yeah. who knows uh-huh. if that's actually real or not. So it was interesting to me. So again, the, the, the physics, I, I, I struggle with that stuff. I, I was saying before that every time I start to think I understand relativity and gravity, you know, I just realized I'm completely lost with it. I do a bit better with biology. And I do have a, at first I had a bit of a nit to pick with the assumptions about biology in here. But as I was watching it the second time in preparation for this, I think they actually did a good job at arguing or or at least asking the question, should we be thinking about the good of the species or should we be thinking about the good of the individuals, right? Um, and, and the reason I'm predisposed to, you know, be defensive about this, because I always hear people saying, uh, particularly in Enneagram circles, that... Uh, Evolution works for the good of the species. It does not, right? Evolution couldn't care less about species. In fact, species is sort of an artificial concept. Uh, It's just a way of uh, referring to populations of organisms that share, you know, common traits. And um, so what the only thing that evolution cares about is um, is reproduction of genes, right? So do these genes reproduce or not? Now, of course, that takes us, uh, you know, into the the is-ought argument, right, uh, uh, that, that Hume so much talked about. Just because something is a certain way doesn't mean it should be. So the question becomes, you know, an ethical question of should we be thinking about the species or should we be thinking about the individuals in that species? Thoughts on that? I mean, throwing it out there, any reaction yeah. to it? I think, I mean, the obvious example was the scene with man and Cooper, just that um, the difference in how they were approaching things. And um, in some ways, I, I felt torn between both of their positions. I mean, Matt Damon was supposed to be um, the antagonist, but I'm like, ugh, but he's he's trying to do something bigger than himself. Um, but I was also rooting for Cooper to get back to his kids. Like, that just represents the nature of being human, um, where it's just this constant contradiction of of desires and needs. Yeah, which is something we also talked about last time on uh, regarding the thin red line. Uh, TJ or TJ, any thoughts on that? Just I was thinking about the scene with Coop and uh, Dr. Brand 
after they decide to go to man's planet, she wants to go to Edmunds. Is that the other guy? Yes. And, you know, she's in love with Edmund, so obviously she's disappointed. And so she's there's the scene where they're talking. She's checking the embryos, and she's basically telling him, well, if this doesn't work out, you're going to have to make the choice whether we all push on and take these embryos and do plan B, or you get to go back and see your kids. And so there's that that dilemma again, you know, see what, what's going to be stronger in him to go see his children or propagate the species. I, I will say in that in that similar scene, like, I do wish they had done a a little bit better job at selling love instead of trying to concretize it. It felt a little cheesy. How do you mean selling love? So, um, just her saying that she, she has this love intuition. And so that's, you know, love is what's going to save the species because, you know, we can't, maybe we can't scientifically quantify it, but there's something there and that's, what's driving me to go to Edmund's planet. So we should go there instead. Yeah, that that felt a little hokey to me as well. Yeah, there there seemed to be a better argument there um, than just banking on some feelings. Coming from a, just someone who really likes feelings, I mean, it's, it's just like let's 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 take a step back here. My guess, I guess we're jumping ahead a little here, is that Christopher Nolan's a five, and it seemed like a pretty big five-ish framing of love. Love is something that we can quantify, or even if there's something mysterious about it, it's a significant signifier of something we don't get yet, implying that love is something that we can and should factor into our calculations. And, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion of the importance of love in terms of our survival as a species and bonding, but how we even feel it for people who've died. So we don't understand it yet, but there's this very just like, let us dissect this thing. Let us look at it as a strange object from all angles. Let us see its utility. And I, I, I found this as well as most of his movies, I think, have a very five-ish overall atmosphere and approach yeah that uh conversation was also i felt one of the weak science points in the movie um and i think you know for the reasons you're talking about is that love seemed forced in there and there was this idea that oh no love is a real force like gravity or something and it can transcend space time etc Okay, right. Uh, So they have this discussion, Coop and Brand, about the evolutionary utility of love, right? And and is it completely explained by evolutionary utility? And Brand said, you know, yeah, we love our children so that we raise them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then she says, well, you know, what about loving the dead, right? That what, what, evolutionary utility does that have? And he said, none. Um, And that I thought, bad bad answer because it's really really easy to explain why we love the dead uh from an evolutionary perspective right the most easy of which is the concept in evolution that's called a spandrel right and a spandrel is a byproduct of some evolutionary adaptation so if you ever you know look in a cathedral and they you know they show the arches right that you know under the bell tower or something well the a spandrel is the the space created by those arches, right? It wasn't intended as the outcome. It's just what happens when you create these arches that crisscross. And there are a lot of things in evolution that work that way as well, right? That there's things that do have an evolutionary adaptation and they create some other trait or characteristic that may not have an evolutionary purpose, but it's there because 
of something else, right? So that was one thing. And quite frankly, by loving the dead, we ensure that, um, you know, we will be treated well in our old age, right? It's just a, you know, it's just kind of a byproduct. So that for me was a weak science piece of the argument. Something that did come up for me along those lines as well was when they were leaving, um, they had that discussion on is nature evil? Anne Hathaway said something along the lines of formidable and frightening, yes, but not evil. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just, I really liked that, um, how she said that. I don't really have anything else to say about that other than another existential topic that I enjoyed. Well, then you will enjoy listening to our episode on the Thin Red Line that we just recorded okay. with Russ because that was pretty much, you know, the, half the podcast was discussing right. that very thing. So that's oh, great. I, I listened to every episode. Such a big <laughs> fan. <laughs> <laughs> she she right. follows it up with the line, is a line evil because it rips a gazelle to shreds, mm. which I thought was a really interesting illustration of that. You know, that's vivid language too. Rips mm. a gazelle to shreds. Yes. Yes. And that, I mean, along those lines, it the whole movie, and it was, part of me wonders if it would be as big today if it was released. Just at least in my in my understanding, it it felt like a bigger space film that, at least in my awareness, um, that was the first time that I encountered some sort of space film like that. It was slower. Everything was very organic. It was not futuristic. There's like hints of futurism, but it was more just very organic, very um, the constant contrast, like um, when they woke up by Saturn and then like he uh coop handed rom i believe his name is yeah romilly yeah. like those the headphones to listen to nature sounds so a cool story i found out about hans and christopher nolan is Kristen gave hans a small script with a little with a few descriptors but no other information and just said i want you to write something with this with no other context and hans ended up writing something basically about parenting because he knew there was some sort of relationship between a father and a child. And that piece was the foundation of the theme for the rest of the film. Um, so it started off from a very intimate one-on-one relationship and then they expounded it into this massive organic cathedral sounding, um, score. I just really, really loved that. Mm. That's an interesting point here because the score, I mean, there were some parts when it was big, um, but for the most part it wasn't. It was quite intimate, right, Mm. Uh, the score, which is uh, interesting in a movie about vast stretches of time and space, that that to have this uh, intimacy in the score was really, um, worked really, really well. Uh, Kind of contrasted with... uh, you know, uh, 2001, right? The, uh, you know, the bombastic nature of so much mm. of the m- music in that movie. Um, man, right. interesting idea. Yeah. One other thing. Yeah. I just, I'm the score guy. I mean, I'm not much yeah, of a no, movie guy, great. but I'm a score that's, guy, that's, right? That's great. So, yeah. that's great. <laughs> Hans, Hans also said they, they just finished the, the Dark Knight trilogy. And so they wanted to just completely start fresh. And so I think it was Chris's idea is like, let's do, let's do an organ. And up until that point, most, um, most movies, organ was like a wedding or a funeral or some sort of spooky something. And so to feature it, um, I guess Hans wrote these parts that were virtually unplayable. 
And wow. they found this organist that just sat down and blew them all away. So they sat down in this massive church and just composed the majority of it on the spot. Wow. Um, and they brought the orchestra in that same church and recorded all the strings. So none of what the score, none of what you hear in the score is um, electronic. All of it is recreated with actual instruments and just the breath and the human element of the whole thing, which I thought was, again, a beautiful contrast to the whole movie. Wow. Wow. Interesting. And for those young listeners out there, instruments are the way that people used to make music. Um, I don't know if there's any young listeners out there, Mario. Let's just be, let's be honest. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And... If you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. Okay, so let's draw the let's bring the enneagram into this podcast here. Um, so, um, uh, enneagram related characters. I don't know. Did anybody stand out uh, to any of you guys as a really good depiction of a particular enneagram type? I wouldn't say there's any character that's a slam dunk. Like there's, I wouldn't say there's one character in this movie that's like, this is a perfect example of a fill in the blank. I've got my ideas for what some of the characters might be, but yeah, I wouldn't say this is a movie that if you want to know the Enneagram, watch Interstellar or if you, even if you want to know a certain type. Uh, does anybody think there was a good hearty Enneagram depiction that they want to go out on a limb for here? I mean, man seemed like five to me. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Five or six, maybe, but just very objective and sees no value in the interpersonal. But we only got to interact with him a little bit, so that was just yeah. kind of a, a passing thought. Yeah. So man being the character played by Matt Damon. Right? Correct, yeah. yes. Uh-huh. Okay, good. There's something incredibly cold in the fact that he not only kills or tries to kill Coop completely dispassionately without malice, just like this is a functional thing, and breaks his helmet, and as Coop is seemingly dying, uh, he keeps talking to him about his own survival instinct. That's particularly cold, and he's not doing it as a cackling villain at all. He's not doing it as, I hate you, I'm stronger than you, or anything like that. It's just simple utilitarian description of the survival instinct and how powerful it is, and that kind of thing. He's not gloating in the slightest, so... I hadn't thought of five as I watched it, uh, but th- that's a pretty five-ish one person killing another scene, if I've ever seen mm. one. Uh, yeah, with man. So uh, it's interesting because my, my first watch through it, I'm thinking kind of three-ish, right? Uh, and then my second time watching it uh, today, I started to see a lot of six stuff, right? And uh, a lot of that um, anxiety and a lot of justification, Right. There was a lot of, well, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing and, you know, that sort of thing. And I thought that there was a, a certain 
cowardliness to that character, right? Which, uh, you know, because they referred to him as, you know, the bravest man ever, right, uh, for going off and doing this. And he even said at one point, you know, few have been tested in the way I have. And in fact, no one has ever been tested like me, um, which to me felt like the, you know, kind of an unhealthy sixes need to justify their actions and what they do and explain them away and that sort of thing. Um, you know, five's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting observation. Again, I don't have strong feelings about it because I don't think it was a hugely clear character. Uh, TJ Ingrassi, did you say anything about man? Do you have any? No. Thoughts? Yeah. I got kind of a six ish vibe as well. Uh, but yeah, nothing, nothing super strong. That was kind of my frustration. I, I hadn't watched it pretty much since 2014. I was expecting more character development but really, it was just yeah. all about Cooper. And even that yeah. was a little bit complicated. I would agree. So thoughts on Cooper. Matthew McConaughey, he plays Cooper. And I think this was, you know, Matthew McConaughey can act, right? I mean, that's, you know, he, he kind of came to fame as the rom-com guy for a while there back in the 90s or something. But has since gone on to show that he's a really fine actor. Um, uh, thoughts on his, that character's Enneagram type. You know, once upon a time, Russ, in a bit of training, typed him as a transmitting two. And that has stayed with me ever since. So I had that in mind watching this, thinking that this character could very well be a transmitting two. Again, not a slam dunk, but my thoughts on that, he's such a loving father. Not that twos have a monopoly on that, but he's very charming. He empowers his kids. So there's an opening scene when they see a, a drone and he goes to follow it. And then he gets his son to take the steering wheel as he works a laptop to try and gain control of the, of the drone so that he can use it. And then as they get it, he lets his daughter land it. And so he's empowering his kids as he does it. And he's just so charming and seductive, even to kid, not seductive in a sexual way, but that kind of like, you're going to love me vibe that he gives in so many of his performances and that he gives off camera as well of like, yeah, that's right. Real good lander out good job. And then he stands up like an eight for his daughter and, and his son at parent-teacher conferences. He leaves his family when somebody else needs him, which can be another shadow of type two. And he's also determined to get back and save them. And he senses Brand's attraction to Edmonds. You know, he's just exquisitely attuned to where is the juice? Where is the love? So yeah, that was my overall impression. Interesting. I, that would have never occurred to me. Uh, it's it's an interesting argument, and I, I you know I'd want to digest it a bit. Yeah. Okay. Any, anybody else on Cooper? Well, um, so just looking into Matthew McConaughey a little bit, uh, sort of researching this. You know, he's got sort of a. I mean, he could be a two. I don't know him that well, but you know, it seems like sort of a stereotype of him is he's got almost kind of like a nine-ish. He's like the big Lebowski come to life or something like he's just so chill and cool. But apparently from some stuff he said in his book and a couple podcast thing I checked out, he apparently he's got a lot of seven ish kind of stuff going on in him as well. And so it was hard to see past Matthew McConaughey, you know, just as a <laughs> as the force that he normally is into the character. But, you know, we talk about characters that are the most enneagrammatically conflicted. So it felt to me like, and I keep saying this in, in podcasts, like the difference between the script that's on the page and, and how he performs it. The script felt pretty five-ish to me, 
you know, he's very he's very much about the science, collecting data. He tells Murph, you know, he he rebuffs her at one point in something. He says that's not very scientific. Uh, she's trying to make an argument about the ghost, and he says, "Well, you want to talk science? You got to collect the data and present your evidence." Uh, when they get back to the house after the dust storm, and the dust is in her room, and there's these gravitational fields that they're trying to figure out. He basically sits on the floor and just stares at it for like a couple days. It's sort of, it's a very extended period of time. He's just studying and gathering the data. So, and and this thing about, he has a line where he says, we used to look up and wonder about our place in the stars. Now we look down at our place in the dirt. And um, so it it feels like maybe there's some, the script feels kind of five-ish, but it's being played by this guy who's got like this cool, chill, nine-ish vibe with some seven-ish excitement and wonder, you know, wonder at the stars. You know, we should look up at the stars, not down at the dirt. In that scene where they're arguing about which planet to go and Dr. Brand is arguing for love, he says something like, love has social utility, child rearing. He's very utilitarian about it. Very, he's not swayed by this, by the touchy feely kind of stuff, at least in that scene. So I don't know. That's, that's how I felt about it. Pretty conflicted. Yeah. So, I mean, within the first few moments of the film, it started, it immediately struck me as seven. I mean, he's an optimist and idealist and um, uh, yeah, exactly. A very great dad, really great dad. And then I started seeing um, the, the like the parent teacher conference, and then the adventure with Murph to the hidden NASA base. I started seeing some more like eight, where it's it's like challenging the authority, and oh, you're gonna put a fence in my way? I'm just gonna walk through it. Like there's, it was it was excitement about pushing the boundaries. So like there, but there's just this underlying power of. I can do what I want and I will. And so then there's a point where I, I I thought about three for a little bit, but then I, I kind of came back more towards seven or eight because there is this constant, always thinking about protecting others his kids and trying to make the most calculated decision and assert himself in the place of risk, taking control and leadership automatically, even though that was his position, it was just never like, Let's see what everyone else thinks. It's just like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And pretty confident and willing to take the blame for whatever happens, like getting sucked into a black hole. So, yeah, I I think this is a good case of an unclear character probably played by an actor who is a bit different than, you know, who was written in the script, that sort of thing. Regarding Matthew McConaughey, that's interesting. I I wonder if in real life he's a transmitting nine. um, And I see, I'm starting to believe that a lot of actors and actresses are transmitting nines and it gives them more range to, you know, just in their temperament to be more laid back, easygoing, or more assertive and so forth. I haven't thought that through, haven't done the research yet, so I'm just speculating there. For me, I can see all those points that you guys made, right? I can see some five stuff. I can see some eight stuff, some seven stuff. The theme that was most interesting to me was actually the three stuff, though. And again, I'm not asserting that the character was a three or a good depiction of a three, but the, and at the risk of jumping ahead a little bit here, and I'm, I'm going to jump ahead and then rein it back in, um, this whole movie was about three stuff. 
in my mind, right? Because it was about um, aspiration, right? There was this, you know, in the beginning, there was the story of him being this pilot. And when he's having the the conversation with his father-in-law, he talks about, you know, the father-in-law says to him, well, you never wanted to be here. You always wanted to be up there. And he said, yeah, you know, I want to explore. There's this, there's this idea of exploration, of excellence, of achievement that comes through over and over again. And I see a lot of threes mistype themselves and be mistyped as either fives or ones, um, oddly enough, particularly if they're a preserving three. And I would say that for me, the kind of profile that fit most was the preserving three. They're not as image conscious, right? They're more task oriented. They're more driven to achieve. Okay. They're, you know, get it done, make it happen. You know, there's nothing we can't do. They're very family oriented, right? Uh, Which is a big part of that. And I've confused over my career a number of preserving threes with sevens because they actually have this energy to them that's kind of always moving. There's often an intelligence and a lightheartedness, uh, you know, mixed with this ambitiousness and a less obvious, you know, kind of uh, uh, concern about how other people view them. Um, again, I don't think it's a great fit for a lot of reasons, but that's the thing that kept coming up for me. There was this thing about, you know, they weren't going to send his son to college, right? Uh, And it was like, you know, that was horrible to him. And it was, you know, it seemed to me because he has so much potential, he could be so much, and you're not giving him that opportunity, which to me felt like the worst thing you could say to a a three. Um, This movie had a lot of conversation about honesty, right? About who we really are. Uh, 90% honest. There there you go, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, and so what is that line? Okay. So again, I don't want to jump into the the underlying theme yet, but for me, it really started to show in that character. So uh, reactions to that, any thoughts? Uh, That had not occurred to me. I saw him as very much a transmitter and I saw one of the major themes in the movie is the tension between transmitting and preserving. So T.J. and Gracia, the line that you quoted earlier, we used to look up in the sky and wonder our place in the stars, and now we worry about our place in the dirt. That followed directly the father-in-law's line saying, when I was a kid, it felt like they made something new every day, like every day was Christmas. So this time of innovation, as opposed to when the movie begins, which is a time when all of that has been reined back, when innovation has been put on pause and we're just trying to survive. And as a transmitter, I can say this, that idea is horrifying to me. The idea of like, let's just hunker down and let's just farm. Let's just get by with what we have as opposed to pushing into the unknown. And the movie is so much about a character who wants to be up in the stars. And he's also, he's a flashy pilot. He does a bunch of things that are not the textbook way to land, that aren't a textbook way to restart the ship and things like that. And he pulls it off every time with panache. So that seems quite transmitty to me. Yeah. So I'm going to push back on that a little bit, TJ. And I would say that the idea of propagating the species is more transmitting, right? We need to continue this legacy, right? We need to ensure that our genes carry on, whereas his impulse was continually to go back 
right, to save those who already exist and not worry about, you know, that, you know, but to be with my family, to be with, you know, to protect those people, care for them, the ones who are here and immediate in my nest, rather than thinking, you know, beyond that in a big way. So I agree with you that this movie was about that tension. Okay, but even and and again, I think number one, some of that uh, that conflict we see in, in in that character can be attributed to threeness, perhaps, right? Uh, which again will bring that sort of flashier version of preserving. Okay, and also probably McConaughey. Well, I wouldn't say probably, definitely McConaughey being a transmitter in real life, right? You can't just you can't put a blanket over that kind of charisma, right? Uh, so I think it sort of leaked out. But I think you're onto something. You know, I just kind of take a, a different sort of twist on it. I think. Yesterday, I was walking down my street back to my house, and there was McConaughey on the side of a truck with <laughs> a glass of bourbon, wild turkey bourbon in his hand. <laughs> There you are. He wasn't driving a Lincoln at the time. <laughs> Not at the time. No, no. <laughs> Did anybody ever see Lone Star, the John Sayles movie uh, with Matthew McConaughey, uh, Chris Cooper, Chris Christopherson? I highly, highly recommend this m- movie. Matthew McConaughey had a, uh, a fairly bit part in it. And right away, this guy's a movie star, you know, and uh, I think it might have been certainly one of his earliest roles. Uh, all right, good. So I highly recommend Lone Star. I'm a big John Sayles fan, and um, that, I think, was one of his best movies. Um, Eight Men Out, another one, um, Matawan, uh, you know, all great stuff. Um, okay, so um, any other thoughts on Coop before we look at uh, some of the other characters? The, the only reason I retracted my three thought um, during the movie was because it, it there wasn't as much again maybe this is just how i how i skew threes but it's a it's very much about my own personal attaining of success and i just never got that vibe from him it was always about everyone else and bringing the whole is that just a healthy three then uh, well I, uh, I i i actually would say that that is a characteristic of the preserving three Right, the preserving three is well. I I would because I have to be right, so I'm going to find some way (laughs) to justify my point of view. But I, I, I'll tell you guys, I have worked with, I can't count how many preserving threes who were engineers or project managers or product managers whose job it was to just get stuff done, not hog the limelight you know again everybody thinks threes are these people who want to be you know on stage all the time who want all the attention who want to look good that's definitely the transmitting three it's to a good degree the the navigating three it's not the preserving three the preserving three wants to be outstanding at getting stuff done give me problems to solve i'm gonna make it happen okay whereas a five is gonna say give me a problem to solve and i'll give you a plan right and the preserving three is going to say, give me a plan or give me a problem to solve and I'll get it done. You know, and that, that's what I've read into this character. So, yeah, I think if you want to see a really spot on preserving three an unambiguous preserving three depiction, see um, Will Smith in pursuit of happiness. I think that's a great depiction of it's it. It's a great film. I've seen that one. Wow. <laughs> there you go. Great. All right. Um, uh, so, um, Dr. Brand, uh, played by Anne Hathaway, uh, thoughts on her Enneatype? 
could be five, could be three is what I was thinking. Not a clear case for either, but she shuts down the chit-chat after they're in space and advises Coop that he's literally wasting his breath by <laughs> staying awake and sending a final message to his kids. She risks her life on that water planet to get the data. She tries to keep her emotional attachments out of the discussion about which planet they should go to. And she's pretty straight-faced on finding out that her father lied about the gravity equation. And then there's that line that we referenced earlier, is a lion evil because it rips a gazelle to shreds. I could see every single one of those points being used to bolster the argument for five or three. Yeah. Thoughts, guys? TJ Creek? Not really. I, I, she was she was the tough one for me. Yeah. Uh, Not her with, best role. But go, go ahead. No. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I can just I can't watch Anne Hathaway do anything and not think of Princess Diaries. I mean, I just. <laughs> Yes. Is that on your top five? It list? is on my top. Five. Um, it was a it was a movie in my childhood that our, our family watched a lot. So, um, it's yeah. There was the thing that I kept seeing was just this overriding sense of duty, and it's very singularly focused on that. But I couldn't I couldn't extrapolate which which kind of duty. Um, as far as any, uh, any type. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, fortunately I'm not, I don't have the baggage of the princess diaries, uh, you, you know, to, to skew my interpretation of any future, uh, Anne Hathaway role. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, I, you know, it, again, not a clear cut depiction of anything. I thought it was not a, um, it was an unremarkable role uh i thought um you know which could speak to the fiveness that uh, uh you know one of you was talking about this you know sort of flatness i there were some at points i started thinking about wannishness right i mean it was m probably more a navigating kind of one it wasn't this finger wagging sort of thing but there were a couple of references to trying to do the right thing and um you know and and feeling kind of having a breakdown when she didn't know what the right thing to do was right and just you know but again i i, I wouldn't put money on it um not a great depiction um bromley um who I, I thought was a pretty decent nine character i thought he was a pretty good depiction of a nine right and you, you know just yeah you, you know when they come back uh from uh, you know, the planet and 23 years have passed and he's just like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I could have slept it all away, but I, I thought I'd be of use, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just like, and by the way, why did nobody's hair grow? I mean, come on, man. You know, I mean, you know, that. so he had a little gray in his beard, you know, okay, which I thought was nice, but it was the same length and his hair was the same length. And, you know, so he did lose hair. Holding the same amount. Uh, yeah, Tars right. gave him a haircut every uh, couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. I got to keep that fade. What up. about Tars? Did you get any vibes? Oh, any? Wow. Now that's a little, Ooh. you know, whatever. It's an inanimate uh, object, but. Oh, interesting. So. H that, that's Eight? what I was thinking oh, as well. Yeah, yeah, sort of like the dark humor, sort of yeah. poking a little bit. He's in control, but he's also willing to, you know, uh -huh. step back when he needs to. Yeah. He's blunt. He's direct. Salty humor. Yeah. Action-oriented. Yeah. He was one of my favorite characters. <laughs> <laughs> and he was puppeteered and voiced by the great Bill Irwin. Yes. Uh, probably a seven. Probably a seven, Bill Irwin. Would you think, TJ? I don't know enough about a mob okay. screen to know. 
Yeah, because he was famous. You know, he was a clown early on in his uh, earliest career. He was uh, quite a famous clown. And then he did a lot of things. He would be on, um, uh, was it Sesame Street? Sesame Street, Sesame yeah. Street uh, a lot and always played this kind of seven-ish sort of clown. But yeah, okay. Yeah, he was in a movie with Anne Hathaway called Rachel Getting Married in which he played uh-huh. the father of the bride. And it's a quite a sad, dramatic film. And really? He plays a very straight role just oh, perfectly. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he's a wonderful actor. He's played uh, the lead role in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway. Like, oh, right, right. He's a actor. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, boy, I'm, I'm really starting to realize how unfamiliar I am with uh, Anne Hathaway's catalog of work. Because you know? <laughs> I haven't seen Rachel that Getting one. Married is great. That's yeah. uh, Jonathan Demme. Oh, interesting. Okay. And handheld. So I remember I saw it in the theater and there was a sign warning you that if you're prone to motion sickness, this movie might be difficult for you. Mm. All right. Well, I can't watch that with my wife then. All right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Who uh, did, are we missing? Anybody that we want to uh, exp- Murph? Murph. Oh, of From course. Of course. Character. Of course. Yeah. Thoughts on Murph? I, I thought eight was my top guess, but again, not a perfect eight. You know, one of the big things about her is that she really cuts her father off after he leaves. The kind of a "you're dead to me" attitude. You can see eights don't own that, but right. that can be an eight thing of like, and she's not even willing to send him a message years later when he's in space. She's also, if there's an argument, if there's a conflict, she's ready and willing to step right up. And she is dogged in her pursuit of the truth. It was difficult at first, especially as she was younger, because I, all of her reactions were just, well, yes, of course, everyone. Human, very human. Yeah. React to that way. Yeah. I could see the eight. I, I I didn't have a strong pull one way or the other. Um, I guess I, I guess setting your brother's field on fire is pretty brazen. Um, that would that would fit for me, I suppose. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I I felt like there was a strong eight five connection. You know, she's very at the beginning of the film, especially you know when she's younger. She's also seems to have this. You know, her father's encouraging her to follow the data and study and be scientific and. She's studying the ghost in her room and gathering the data and very meticulous about it. So, yeah, she the, just overall the character felt to me sort of like an eight with a very strong connection to five. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I struggled with this character and, um, you know, and the argument you guys are making for eight is really good, um, but not played by an eight. Um, I don't think Jessica Chastain is an eight. I think she plays really good threes. I think she pl- has played some good nines. I think she was an amazing nine in uh, Tree of Life, um, in movies like Molly's Game and, you know, some of the others. Um, um, very, very three-ish character. She plays that really, really well. Might be a three in real life, but could be an eight played by a three um, from my view. Okay, um, so the theme of the film uh, for me, like I said before, was very three-ish, okay? Directed by a five, uh, you know, uh, probably, uh, to T.J. Dawes' earlier point. I don't know anything about Kip Thorne or, you know, the other writers behind it, but, uh, you know, a f- probably a fairly five-ish theme. If he's an astrophysicist, you, you know, uh, it wouldn't be too hard to see that. But to me, this movie was all about the value 
of human life, right, which always makes me think of three. It was about aspiration. It was about what does it mean to be human. It was about truth and what do we reveal about ourselves and why and what do we hold back and why about deception, okay, because certainly Dr. Brand, the Michael Caine character, I, you know, I don't know that I'd say he was a three in the movie, but, you know, willing to set the truth aside for the greater good, you know, which again is, you know, a sort of three-ish theme. It was about aspiration, right? I mean, what is the, what are the goals of the human species if there are such things, okay? Again, from a biological perspective, I would argue with that, but from an ethical and psychological um point of view it's a really interesting question you know one that uh, um, Elon Musk uh, among others is wrestling with right now not suggesting he's a three but again you know what is the future look like how should humans see themselves into the future uh, so for me a lot of underlying three stuff here yeah my big three-ish thing I thought was what are you willing to do to achieve the goal Yes. Which corners do you have to cut? Which sacrifices do you have to make? Who is let in on the complete plan? Do you bring people on without their own knowledge, including in Brand's case, his own daughter, in order to do the the thing, the thing that needs to be done? Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. As we all know, I have a blind spot for threes, <laughs> but yeah, I, I but I can I can see all that making sense. I sort of was picking up, I think, more on the five-ish kind of vibes of the film. But I think maybe it could just be, maybe it's like a bunch of three themes told through the eyes of a five. And so there's sort of that scientific data gathering, um, detached, you know, sort of affect to it. Yeah. that That's a very good way to think about it, TJ. I like that. Creek, any thoughts on that? I think I think maybe I come back to the original when we were talking about Cooper's type is it didn't nothing's felt self-centered about the whole movie it was it was very much a collective and maybe that's why I didn't pin it as a three I also wasn't necessarily looking for themes in the movie I was just trying to break down the characters so I don't have a lot of pre premeditated thoughts on the theme at this point and I want to say in defense of threes, as somebody who has worked with more threes than I can remember or count uh, over the years as an executive coach, I think they get a bad rap in the Enneagram literature. And I think that they're a great stereotype for movies, you know, or that stereotype of the three is a great stereotype for movies. But in my experience, uh, most threes are decent, loving, you know, caring people who are trying to do the right thing. And, um, you, you know, and it's not always about themselves. And, um, I, you know, I've said this with transmitting threes, you know, in, in other episodes, when you're talking to a transmitting three, you'll often hear a lot of self-talk, right? A lot about, you know, their accomplishments, their achievements, what they think, what they did, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But underneath of it, there's this real desire to do well for other people. You know, I can't tell you, it's almost a cliche the number of times I've had threes, transmitting threes in coaching sessions, break down when they start talking about wanting to take care of, 
their family, their mothers, their siblings, their employees, etc. I mean, that really does mean something to them. It just doesn't come across in the way they speak all the time. Um, and again, I'll go back to the preserving three. Um, usually very home-oriented, very family-oriented, still wants to achieve, but you know, you know, really focused on the well-being of others. So, um, anyway, um, again, I don't think that this movie had really strong, really clear uh, Enneagram-type depictions, but I think it did make for some interesting conversations about, you know, how we assess people, right, and how difficult it can be sometimes, okay, because it is, and this is something we always need to keep in mind. Um, so final thoughts, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give Creek, uh, you know, I'm going to hold you back a little bit, Creek, here for final thoughts on the movie uh, and hear from the two TJs first. Uh, final thoughts, TJ or TJ? I just want to build on what TJ and Gracia said about the how the movie was made by a five and how a lot of that seeps into it. So some of the things that I took note of about that, we've already talked about the conversations of love as a quantifiable element. There's a few things that you might expect to be in a movie that is about this that simply were not there. For one thing, there's no fanfare when they take off in their mission to leave the earth and rescue the human species. There's no rousing speech. There's no music that's played. There's there's no montage of him getting back into shape, doing you know training or anything like that. It's just suddenly he's leaving home intercut with they're already in space and that's it. We're done. Same with before they go into cryogenic sleep. It takes them two years to get to Saturn and they just individually zip up their envelopes and bloop, they're gone. They don't say anything. Uh, and again, there's no inspirational speech when they wake up. There's no celebration. There's no, there's, there's conflicting opinions about where they should go because they only have so much fuel. There's not one yelling match. And then there's man talking to Coop when he believes he's dying. There's something that uh, we talked about the link to 2001. Stanley Kubrick was given some major award by the director's guild, a kind of a lifetime achievement thing. And he videoed in his speech because he didn't care to leave his home, much less he didn't like flying. But he talked about the myth of Icarus and how the common interpretation of that is don't fly too close to the sun. Whereas he draws a different meaning from it, which is learn to build better wings, which is just so five. It was like, this is a complicated technical challenge. And if you're smart enough, you can outsmart the unsolvable equation, which is kind of what this movie is about. Although it's interesting that this, unless I'm misreading the events of the movie, the solution also just incorporates abandoning the earth. It's just, <laughs> the earth is fucked. Climate change is irreversible. Billions and billions will die. We can rescue a few people into these big tubular space stations and then eventually get somewhere through a wormhole and repopulate another planet and then eventually fuck that one up because we haven't learned anything. But then that's just another technical challenge for us to solve. So there's that. And then there's the fact that this movie was filmed in IMAX, which is a huge technical challenge and that he completely resisted any temptation to go space fantasy versus science fiction. Like everything was grounded right to the fact that it takes two years to get from Earth to Saturn. Whereas in Star Wars or Star Trek, they're traveling between star systems in a matter of minutes. Or in Star Trek, when they're zooming through warp speed, you know, stars are just zipping by and there's no reference to time dilation. There's no reference at all to relativity. Whereas this factors all of that in. So it just makes time travel seem really difficult and time consuming. And time is a resource as they talk about. And 
and this massive technical challenge in doing it, I couldn't sense one moment in this movie, not one frame where it looked false, where it looked like they'd cut corners or where they were trying to thrill you. It was more like they were trying to bring you into something that looked plausible and believable and immersive. So if you saw this on the big screen, particularly on an IMAX screen, it felt like you were in space, which is the intention, which is a massive technical challenge and had never been achieved before in this way. I guess the closest would probably be 2001, but this is with different technology. And I think that's uh, Christopher Nolan just saying, I'm going to do that impossible thing, kind of that connection between five and eight. And I'm going to climb this impossible mountain like a five does with my incredible brain. Excellent. Excellent points, uh, TJ. And uh, yeah, I think you're making a, uh, a really good point for stepping back and looking at the five-ish aspects of this movie as well. So that's, I, I re really liked what you had to say there. Uh, Seth Creekmore, final thoughts on the movie. I think uh, for me, to Canadian TJ's point, is um, the things that weren't in it were almost more interesting than the things that were. Not completely, but what I thought at first was a bug became a feature where there, there wasn't a lot of, the drama was never really among people, a little bit here or there, but really the drama was, was much larger, larger than any interpersonal dynamic. And the, and I just, I, I just don't encounter that a lot in movies. So it was, it was about the bigger questions and how do we wrap our heads around these larger questions of existence and meaning and love and death. And I just, I, I still love the movie. I don't know if I'm going to be watching it six or seven times as your son does, but um, uh, I've, I've listened to the score multiple times and that is the thing that just keeps me loving this movie. That almost religiosity coming from that, from that organ where it's 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 not so much excitement like we'd normally anticipate from like some sort of space film it's more awe and wonder and grandeur when i think about christopher nolan's movies i'm usually wowed and awed but not touched right? kind of mm. like I, I feel with fincher's david fincher's movies who we talked about as our representative of the five last season great movies you sit there saying man this is a brilliant movie man he did an amazing job with the camera work with the you know drawing some of the actors whatever it is but i'm rarely touched emotionally uh in this movie i was right um partly with the music partly with the story that did border on the mawkish at points you know when Matthew McConaughey would start talking about love and et cetera. I started thinking, eh, you're right up on the edge of, you know, a little too hallmarky here. But I was moved by this. I, I was, I felt emotionally touched as well as intellectually challenged. So from that perspective, I was struck to see that the uh, Rotten Tomatoes score on this was only about 73 or 78%, uh, which in my view, I mean, it's positive, but it's not that high. Uh, this was a very successful movie financially, made a lot of money. Um, I thought it worked on level after level. Um, so highly, highly recommend Interstellar to our audience if you have not seen it yet. Okay. So uh, with that, we'll, we'll bring it to a close here. Seth Creekmore, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for picking one of the seven movies you have seen to, uh, to discuss <laughs> with us. <laughs> 
My, my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Next up, Princess Diaries. Uh, no, <laughs> hey. <laughs> All right. I think that should be a series for you all is choose a film that you absolutely hate. Yeah, well, we did that already. Uh, with, oh, you uh, did? Well, no, not quite. Okay. We, we picked a movie that TJ and Gracia absolutely hated with uh, Grease. <laughs> <laughs> but and I picked it even though I don't love it. Yes. Now, that said, I believe this is our final episode of the season. Is that correct? All right. So, uh, dear listener, this has been a wonderful season. We've covered a whole lot of ground from the Marvel comic universe to, am I saying that right, guys? Uh, the Marvel comic universe? Marvel cinematic Cinematic universe. universe. Thank you. I knew I was, MCU is all I know. Um, you know, which actually turned out to be a lot more uh, enjoyable and stimulating than I expected it to be. Uh, we then went into some fan or employee picks and covered a bunch of movies, and we did some guest picks. Uh, culminating here with um, Interstellar and our friend and um, podcast um, megastar, I go so far, particularly as far as uh, wow. yeah, <laughs> especially as far as Enneagram related uh, podcasts. Well, you know, uh, Seth Creekmore. So great to have you, Creek. Okay, folks, uh, we're going to take a little break here for a while and gear up for the next season of the Enneagram in a Movie. So long, guys. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.